I want you to join me in two different passages of Scripture this morning, and that's, of course, 1 Samuel 17, which has been home base for us, but also the Gospel of John, chapter 11. So, so 1 Samuel 17, which is our primary text, and then John chapter 11 gives us a great picture. I'm a visual learner. I like things that you can kind of see and kind of picture in your mind. And so John 11 gives us a wonderful picture of our salvation, and it also gives us a pretty good picture of a condition that many of us will find ourselves in. We're in a series of sermons. The, the, the big picture of our sermon series, the title of our sermon series, is Burning Hearts. We, we took that straight from Luke chapter 24, when these two disciples, you'll remember, on the day Jesus is raised from the dead, they're on their way to Emmaus, but they're discouraged. They thought, they say, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. They had misunderstood the mission of Jesus. And then Jesus himself begins to walk with them. They don't know it's Jesus right away. And then as they walk that seven-mile journey to Emmaus, Jesus begins to open up their understanding in their eyes. And they said, did our hearts not burn within us as we walked along the way with Jesus, when he opened up our eyes to the scripture, opened up their eyes to understand what? That all of the Bible is about Jesus. Uh, Particularly, the Bible says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the things concerning himself. Did you know the Old Testament is about Jesus? Did you know Noah's Ark is about Jesus? Exodus is about Jesus. Ruth is about Jesus. David and Goliath is about Jesus. The prophets are all about Jesus. The Bible doesn't start to be about Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's all about Jesus. For example, Exodus again teaches us that salvation is getting out of bondage. Anybody this morning is in bondage. Salvation is getting out of bondage by grace through a mediator in order to be made holy. That's what Exodus proclaims and exodus is about jesus it's a great picture of jesus isn't it ruth is a great picture of jesus is it not that that jesus can redeem us to life even after we've made decisions leading to death and 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 those are a few of the pictures and then we find ourselves in first samuel 17 and this is a remarkable picture i'll say it again we've said it probably every week understanding this really understanding it and believing it and obeying it is probably going to be the difference in your individual life between having sort of a ho-hum, monotonous, and mediocre life as you walk with the Lord and having a life of great kingdom impact. I mean, I'm talking about you see people come to faith in Christ through your own witness. You you, you see great victory in overcoming sin. And, And here's the lesson. Not only has Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin, that's good news, is it not? Hallelujah, amen. He paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. But that's not all that he's done. Not only has Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, he's also saving us from the power of sin. And here's a pretty good way of understanding it here in John chapter 11. Jesus brings a man from death to life. You, you may know this story, Lazarus. But I want you to see a little something uh, that's in the details here. In John chapter 11, you, we won't go into all the background. You know that this is Lazarus, the family of Mary and Martha. They were friends of Jesus, lived in Bethany. Uh, Lazarus had gotten sick, and Mary and Martha had hoped that Jesus would show up and heal him before he died. And then Jesus doesn't show up until after he's dead. And they're a little bit disappointed about that. But, but, but the main point for our purposes is here it says in John chapter 11, verse 38... Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is it they want to see? 
the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And what's what's true of Lazarus? He's dead. Now, again, this is an amazing physical miracle, but there's more to it than just what's happening in the physical world. Jesus is teaching us about spiritual resurrection, coming from death spiritually to life spiritually. Who's got the power to call you from death to life? Jesus does. I like what one commentator said. He said, Lazarus, come out, because if he just said, come out, all the dead would have come out. He's got that much power. He has to be specific. Lazarus, you come out. But I want you to notice, even though Lazarus has life, there's still an issue. The man who had died came out. That's good news, right? Where there has been death, now there's life. But he's still got a problem. Look at it. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. So, so uh, in those days, obviously, when you buried somebody and he's been buried in a cave, you'd, you'd wrap him in almost like a mummy, honestly. I mean, you'd wrap them and bound them up and their hands would be bound up and their feet would be bound up. So it's uh, no exaggeration to say he's having a hard time. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. All right, I'm coming out. And his, and his face is, his face is wrapped up, so you can't really see very well. So, so it's awesome. He's got life. Uh, his heart wasn't beating, and now it is beating, but he's, but he's bound up. And that's a picture of your salvation. Jesus has raised you to life, but you come up out of the grave bound up with some stuff. Can we all agree with this? You come up out of the tomb, and it's a picture of sinful strongholds that still have some sway in your life. So Jesus says he's not just going to leave Lazarus there, right? Uh, the truth of the matter is, is he can't survive very long in that condition, right? It's going to be hard to eat. It's going to be hard to go swimming. It's going to be hard. Maybe this is the most important point for us. It's going to be very difficult for him to actually enjoy the life that Jesus has given him. And I think that's where many of us find ourselves. And this is a message specifically to believers in Jesus. You're a follower of Christ. You've heard his voice. He said, come up out of the grave and you've responded in faith. It's by grace we are saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. There was nothing Lazarus could have done to take his non-beating heart and make it beat again. But now that his heart is beating, guess what? He's got a mind. He's got a, a body, but it's all bound up. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, so people standing by, unbind him and let him go. Now, as, uh, th- this is just another way of saying what we've already said from 1 Samuel 17. There's some of us, we've got life, but we're bound up. We're bound up in fear. We're bound up in addiction to pornography or We're bound up in materialism. We're bound up in the love of ease and the love of comfort. We're bound up with rejection that we talked about last week. We're we're bound up with anger that we'll talk about in weeks to to come. But But we're bound up. We have life, but we're really incapable of helping many other people because we're so bound up. And and the other issue is, is that we can't really see Jesus very clearly because what else is bound up? His whole face is bound up. And Jesus said, you've got to unbind him. And, and here's a principle for us as well, is he gets some other people to help in that process. And that's what we are, friends, the church. The, the church is not a place where 
bound up people can come and have their bound upness just pointed out. The church ought to be a place where bound up people can come. And, and Jesus says to them, unbind him. And here's, oh, here's the freedom. And let him go. Let him go. Let him be free. Let him enjoy the life that I have given him. Does that make sense? I think for many of us this morning, that resonates with us because it's sort of our experience. We've come up out of the grave, but we still got some significant grave clothes on. And in just a moment, I want to put on the screen uh, uh, one, of the most, um, one of the most famous political photographs of the, of the 20th century. But before we put it on the screen, I want you to give a, a little bit of background. It's a picture taken in 1948. It's a picture taken in 1948 just after the presidential election. In 1948, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, Harry Truman was the incumbent. And Truman himself had not been elected president. He became president when Franklin Roosevelt died in 1944. So, so Truman had been president from 1945. Actually, FDR died in 45. Somebody, I, I know that, so he's uh, already thinking that. But, but so anyway, Truman became president in 45 and then was up for re-election in 48. But the consensus was that um, he wasn't really up to the job. His, his uh, approval rating had been at 81% at the end of World War II, and by the time the election came around four years later, it had plummeted to around 30%. And he was running against a man who'd been a multi-term governor of New York named Thomas Dewey. And in fact, uh, in September of that year, one of the major polling um, uh, companies in America stopped polling, and they said there's really no point to it anymore. We're, we're, we don't need to keep polling the, the, the American citizens because it's obvious that Thomas Dewey is going to win. Their last poll had Dewey at 51 percent, Truman at 38 percent, and then some third-party candidates making up the rest of it. So here, here's the picture. That's what the, you know, uh, that's Harry Truman, right? And And yet he's holding up a newspaper that says Dewey defeats Truman. So the question obviously would be, why is he so happy, right? I mean, if Dewey defeated Truman, why is he so so happy? And and the reason is, is most of you may know this already, is, well, Dewey hadn't defeated Truman. They had said over and over and over, and all the major newspapers, all the major pollsters said, oh, it's inevitable. As As a matter of fact, Thomas Dewey, didn't really campaign all that much. His statement was, the less I say, the better, because Truman's already dug himself such a big hole. The headlines proclaimed, Dewey defeats Truman. The problem was, it wasn't true. So why are we telling this story? We're telling this story because I think those of us who are bound up in in sin... Sometimes we believe false headlines that are in bold print. They're not actually true, but because somebody's reporting them as fact, we think they are true. What do we mean? Some of us have a big, bold headline in our life that says, anger wins, or pornography defeats so-and-so. <laughs> We've got these big, bold headlines, and the issue for us has to be who we actually listen to. That's why we open up this word, right? That's why we open up this word. Because the world headline is, death defeats Lazarus. But it's false. You know what the big, bold headline over creation and eternity is? It's Jesus wins. That's what's true. But there are some other marketers 
and campaign strategists in the world, the world, the flesh, the devil, that are proclaiming in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, that something's going to be victorious over you. That's why we have a Bible that needs to be read, because the Bible proclaims a different headline. Here in 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1, picture of Jesus. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. See, there is a fight that's going on. It's a very real struggle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Can we say it again? The Philistines had encroached on territory that did not belong to them. If you're alive and out of the grave, grave clothes don't have dominion over you anymore. Amen? They, they, they don't have authority. They don't have dominion. But though the Philistines did not have dominion, the Israelites had given them dominion. And that could happen in our lives. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six, was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's about 125 pounds. So this is a big dude, 9 feet tall, 125 pounds of armor, huge spear, He's the champion. And it says down here in verse 8, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So the, uh, uh, the lines of battle are about servitude. Who is going to serve who? And that's the question for your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're to serve Christ. But because we're bound up in sin, he who commits sin is a... Did anybody know this verse? He who commits sin is a slave to sin. Servant of sin. Do you have a sin master in your life that's dictating to you what to do, when to do it, where to go, and is proclaiming victory. If you're a follower of Jesus, what we want to say very clearly is you can be free, can be liberated. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So the fundamental question for us this morning is, are you enjoying the fullness of abundant life that Christ died to provide for you? Or have you exchanged that for what's less than abundant life as Jesus said in that same verse, John 10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and to destroy. Israel did not think that Goliath could be defeated. They didn't. For 40 days, Saul and the other soldiers, they, they cower in fear, and uh, they begin to assume that there was nothing that could be done to overcome Goliath. Now, these are the descendants of the people who'd walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, Right? I mean, these are the descendants of the people who marched around Jericho and blew the trumpet and the walls fell down. And now they're paralyzed with inactivity. They're not having any victory because of a a giant. And again, David and Goliath is not some underdog story. You'll hear that most nine out of ten times the references of David and Goliath is the little guy beat the big guy, right? A, A sports upset occurs and they'll say, oh, it's like David against Goliath. That's not really what David and Goliath is about. David and Goliath is about how Christ defeats and slays giant, sinful strongholds 
in our life. So, again, bears repeating in this story, David does not represent us. David represents Jesus. You want to find us in the story, we're Saul and the army of Israel that's encamped in the Valley of Elah in fear. So we've been looking at a series of of giant sins. I don't think um, there's very many of us in the room who when we simply ask the question, what is the sinful stronghold in your life? There are not many of us that, that don't know immediately what it is, right? There are not many of us that don't immediately say, well, it's this, it's, it's fear, it's the approval of man, I'm addicted to people approving me, or it's, uh, uh, it's lust, or it's greed. M- most of us know what it is, and what we want to say is, Jesus is greater than all of those things. Sinful strongholds are more powerful than you are, but they're not more powerful than Jesus is, and they're not more powerful than Jesus in you. So a simple question I would ask, when it comes to sins that have dominion over you, if it's not going to be today that you're going to be free of it, when is it going to be? Because here's a satanic strategy in your life. Yeah, you're going to overcome it, but let's just overcome it when? Tomorrow. We'll fight this battle tomorrow. And then David shows up, and I don't know if you've read this account uh, multiple times. David shows up. You know when David decides the battle will be? Right now. You see, the, the enemy, the devil has two favorite days, yesterday and tomorrow. And his, his goal for your life is that you just be wrapped up in one of those days. Either something happened yesterday and you're still there, or you're waiting on something to happen tomorrow. What's the day of salvation according to the scripture? Today is. Today is the day of salvation. And so if you've been discouraged, if you've got a, a nine-foot giant that comes out a day after day after day and says, you can't overcome, I'm just going to be a part of your life from here on out, remember what's at stake is, well, we'll just ask this in John 11 so we can see this is a consistent theme through Scripture. Jesus says, I'm going to raise him up so that you may see what? How great Lazarus is? No. I'm going to raise him up so that you can see uh, what? The glory of God. And when we begin to engage sinful temptation and overcoming strongholds on that plane, victory is possible because that's when God gets involved. And we don't want to overcome sinful strongholds just so our life's easier or just so nobody finds out about this. We want to overcome sinful strongholds because in overcoming them, God is glorified. Isn't that how David approaches the fight? I'm going to take you down, Goliath, not so people think much of me, but because the battle is the Lord's. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's get more specific this morning. We've been talking about specific giants, and I want to talk about one this morning that holds much sway in the life of our culture. Uh, It's a little hard to narrow it down to, to one word, but I'll go on and use a word, and then we'll explain it, because sometimes this word, but we just want the full definition, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So the giant that leaves many people paralyzed, bound up, making no progress, not seeing Christ clearly, is a giant that I'm going to call addiction. As soon as we use that word, uh, mood changes a little bit, doesn't it? Some things immediately come to mind. Alcohol or alcoholism or or drug addiction. And, And there are people and families that I've ministered to that the struggle has been years and years and years and years. And some of you, it's sensitive. I know because that's what goes on in your family. But I don't, want to, I don't want us to conclude that there are only those forms of addiction. There are a lot of drugs of choice in our culture, amen? 
It, it takes a lot of different uh, uh, forms. Certainly there's alcohol and certainly there's drugs, painkillers. But some people are absolutely 100% addicted to money. Can't get enough of it. Need more and more and more. Some people are addicted to pornography. It's been a huge giant in their life. And they've gone through the cycle of, I'm going to be free, I'm going to be free, I'm going to be free. And now that whole cycle has gone on for years and years to the point that they're standing there thinking, I don't know if I'll ever be free of this. I believe God's great, but maybe he's not great enough for me to be free from this. Some people are just addicted to stuff. And their hit, so to speak, is just to go buy something. I'm just going to go to Target or I'm just going to go to Walmart. Some people deal with life by trying to accomplish things. Accomplishments can be like a drug, can't they? Like an addiction. I just need more and more. Got a commendation, now you need the next one, need the next promotion. Been recognized by a panel of judges, they gave you a reward, an award, an achievement, a trophy, now you got to go get the next one. Or adrenaline. Man, people do some crazy things. People jump out of perfectly good airplanes before they want to rush. They have to be hyped up all the time. They keep Red Bull in business, skydiving, riding off a bike into a swimming pool. I look at that and say, doesn't make any sense to me, but I've got sins of my own. Some people, strangely enough, are addicted to pain. I've seen them, talk to them, cut themselves, hurt themselves. Some people fight an addiction to another person. Absolutely addicted to another person. Why haven't they texted me yet? Why hasn't he called? Where is he? They, they literally cannot be happy unless they have this other person's approval or other person's connection. Stimulation's like a drug. Some people literally cannot be away from some form of screen, whether it's on their phone or their computer or their television. They can't go 10 minutes without having to get their fix. We have 900 television channels now. You remember when there were three, right? Remember when there were three? We have 900, and you know what most people do with their 900? Click, click, <laughs> click, click, click. We even have the ability now to record hundreds of hours worth of television programming, and we're still as bored as we can be, overstimulated. Some families, they can't spend an hour together we're talking. They go out to eat, and you've seen them. I'm not trying to, trying to make fun of anybody, but I was at dinner the other night, and, and here's a family, and there's four of them, and, and dad's on his device, mom's on her device, daughter's on her device, son's on his device, and then we're eating in a place that's got a flat screen. So the only time they look up from their device is to check out what's on the flat screen and go back and back and back. It, it, it's, it's strange. I don't know if it's ironic or what, but it, when you watch people constantly, looking at their, it looks like they're praying, doesn't it? They're, they're like down like this, overstimulated. Now, where does this come from? I think partly as we understand the scripture, it comes from the fact that we were created to be dependent creatures. We were created by God for God. We we're created to be dependent on him. And many of our addictions and struggles come when, when we replace God and we become dependent on something other than God. You know what the Bible word for this is, by the way? It's idolatry, right? And, and idolatry can take all sorts of forms. Yes, it can take the form of substance abuse. And I'm dependent on this 
this, this bottle or, or this drug, but it can also take the form of I'm dependent on this person or, or, or this hobby or this activity or this screen to be plugged into. Now, here's something really, really important. We get our value in that we were created by God. We get our purpose in that we were created for God. Can I just say that one more time? We get our value in that we were actually created by God. In his image, God created them, right? We were created by God. That's where we get our value. Now, there, there is absolutely no coincidence that the more and more we believe that we were not created by God, the less and less value we place on human life, including our own. You see the correspondence? When we, when we as a culture say, no, no, we don't believe that we were created by God. Have you seen the value of life just diminish and diminish and diminish in our culture over the last few generations? That's why. But not only do we get our value in that we were created by God, we get our purpose in that we were created for God. So just as there's been a diminishment in how we uh, esteem life's value, we're seeing more and more people in their own life not have much purpose. Why? Because we were created for God. So, when we don't embrace that doctrine of creation and purpose as revealed in the Bible, now we've got to have a replacement purpose. And that's where addiction comes in because either we conclude there is no purpose. And so I'm just going to spend the rest of my life with this bottle or with this drug or with this something that makes me unfeeling so I don't actually have to... uh, you know, look at the purposelessness of my existence. There isn't a purposeless existence. You're created by God for God. But now when you reject that, that's when these addictions come in. Or you replace it and create a false purpose. And, and maybe the most addicting thing in the world is actually the approval of other people. Do you need the approval of other people? Are you addicted to the approval of other people? Now, here's how it probably works. In, in your own mind, as soon as you said, I'm not... That probably means you are. You know what I mean? I don't care what anybody thinks. You know what they just said? I care what everybody thinks. <laughs> Ever somebody says, I don't care what you think. Well, just by nature of them taking the time to tell you they don't care what you think, they want you to think that they don't care what you think, which is the same as saying they care what you think. Amen? And that's how it works. Deep, deep down in our hearts is the desire to be approved of by other people. We talked about this a little bit last week, but that's not that where social media is gone, right? You got your Facebook, you got your Instagram, you got your Twitter, and you're going to put out a picture of you, and here you are. And, and then, isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? On all those social media uh, platforms, they put a little four-letter word under everything that you post. Have you seen this? Four-letter word, L-I-K-E. For all of your friends to click... I like that. Have you ever put something up and nobody liked it? Sure, I have. And then you start to think, well, what, what, did they not like me? <laughs> What's that? Let's go on and take it down. We'll just, we'll just take it down. Here's me, and here's me here, and here's me and my pet, and here's me and my... Now, you know, you, again, I think social media has great benefits, and we're able to keep up with one another. And, and, uh, uh, and so, so I'm not saying anything overly negative but, but in an addictive culture where people need the approval of others, it can be a little bit dangerous, can it not? Let's, let's drill down just a little bit deeper, if you'll give me the grace to do that. Because, because underneath 
whatever the addiction is, underneath the alcohol or underneath the drugs or the pills or the pornography or the money, there's usually something going on. There's usually some grave clothes. You know, what I, what I imagine is as they were bringing Lazarus out and they began to unbind him, there were layers to the, you know what I mean? There's some sort of outer, let's get rid of the outer, and then we got to get, so, so we're going to unstrip a little bit more and go a little bit deeper, and it goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, actually, uh, here in 1 Samuel 17, I want you to see something that goes on, and it speaks about what we're talking about. So it says here in verse 31, when David finally steps up and says, I'll take him on. It says in verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Do you see a connection between when the giant is allowed to to have authority, all the people get discouraged? That can happen in your life, and it can happen in a church. where In a, in a church where, where sins, simple strongholds are no longer being cast down, that's what David said. Everybody's discouraged. So he says, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Well, according to Saul, Saul measures these guys up and says, you can't fight him. You're too small. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. If you want to articulate that in your own life, my Savior who rescued me from sin and death and the grave is certainly sufficient to have this sinful stronghold fall down in my life. Amen? And Saul said to David, go, <laughs> and the Lord be with you. You know, that's the phrase probably doesn't mean a whole lot to Saul. We sometimes say these things that we don't even know what they mean. The Lord be with you. Now, here's where I want you to see something. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor. So, so what's going on here? All right, David's going to go out and fight. David's, gonna, David's going out to fight in the name of the Lord. And then Saul, who is Saul? Saul's the person who's not willing to fight. Saul's the actual king. Saul's their actual champion. Saul's the one who should be going out to fight. But he's uh, paralyzed with fear. And so Saul begins to give David his armor. You, he begins to cover David up, and, and look what it says here, because this is the lot of our lives. And David strapped his sword over his armor, verse 39, and he tried in vain to go. Remember what Jesus said to Lazarus? Unbind him and what? Let him go. Let him go. And Saul's kind of the opposite. 
uh, uh, David's a free man, and Saul comes up to him and says, here, let me clothe you with my armor. To use the Lazarus illustration, not to get these metaphors too mixed up, but, but Saul comes along and says, here, let me wrap you up in these grave clothes real fast. It's my armor, my big, you know, David's a small guy. Saul at that time, head and shoulders above everybody else. So it sort of looked like, you know, if, if, if my son Abel put my clothes on and came to church, right, put this jacket on and put these, he'd, he'd show up and he, he would probably try in vain to go, Right? Can I tell you that you're not going to overcome spiritual strongholds through physical means? It won't ever happen. And some of us, that's been our life. I'm going to overcome this addiction to pornography by my own willpower. I'm just going to not do it anymore. And you know what the phrase most likely in your life has been? It's right here. He tried in vain to go. This covering up. This covering up. Where does this come from? Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Give me a few minutes with me in Genesis 3 and 4. Oh, the Genesis 3 is so fundamental for us to understand what life's about. The, the, The fall Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. To to use an earlier illustration, he's printing headlines all the time. He prints these headlines over and over, and they sound as if they're true. He's just more crafty. He's got a headline for Eve to read. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first uh, strategy of the devil is to call God's word and his goodness into question. It's the beginning of many of our addictions. We think there's something better than God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The first outright lie in the Bible. And I want you to notice, this is very helpful for us. The first doctrine that Satan lies about is the doctrine of judgment. First thing the devil lies about is, no, you're not going to die. What did God said would happen? You eat it, what will happen? You will die, plain as day. Is that lie still permeating our culture? Absolutely. There's no judgment. There's no consequences. Do what you want to do when you want to do it. There's no judgment. You don't have to worry about it. That's what he said to Eve. So, so, so we won't read all these verses, although they're all great to understanding temptation. But after they eat of the fruit, it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That's a direct connection up here to chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Look what happens. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's happening here? We'll use the phrase. They're covering up. They're covering themselves up. Where they had been unashamed, now what are they, obviously? They're ashamed. And they're going to pass this trade on to their children, their children's children, children's children, all the way down to right now. Quick question. Are there things in your life that are sinful that nobody else knows about? Nobody knows. Struggles that you have that maybe your spouse doesn't even know about. You know where this comes from? We're covering it up. We're covering it up. They knew something was wrong, and so they seek to cover it up. You know what a lot of our addictions are, by the way? I've got to cover this up. I'm going I'm to cover this up so that nobody sees. 
Look at the first thing Adam and Eve do after the fall. See, we, we feel vulnerable in this sinful, broken world, right? I'm, I'm afraid of what people will think if they see me, so I'm going to hide. They cover up and hide. That's their first response. I don't want people to know that I'm insecure or that I'm angry or that I'm full of lust or that I'm tired or that I'm weary or that I'm lonely or that I'm afraid or that I'm you fill in the blank. And Adam and Eve had peace with God and a place with God in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, they don't have peace and they don't have a place. After sin entered, they're isolated from God, but they're still with one another. You see, here comes the big problem. Now, where they had had peace with God and a place with God, now they don't have peace with God. They don't have a place with God. They don't have peace with each other, but they have a place with each other. Did that make sense? So that all's left, all that's left after the fall is they got a place with one another, but there's no peace anywhere, and they just start blaming each other, don't they? So here's, here's what comes. Real quick, y'all just hang with me. I want you to see this because it helps us understand the problems we've got in the world at large and in your own heart. They pass something on to their children. We won't read all the verses. You know what happens with their children, right? Cain and Abel. Because when there's no peace with God, y'all track with me, just hold on with me. When there's no peace with God and no place with God, and then there's no peace with one another. Remember, they start blaming each other. It's her fault, it's his fault. Then their children inherit two things. Comparison and compulsive behavior. Comparison. Why does Cain get angry? Because he compares his offering with Abel's. And God said, God said, Cain, your offering isn't sufficient. A lot of reasons why, but we won't go into them this morning. Abel's offering was a picture of Christ. Cain's offering was not. So God comes in a corrective, repentant way to say, Cain, you need to repent. But, but Cain compares and then has compulsive behavior. It says he rises up and strikes down Abel, right? Isn't that what happens? He feels weak. He feels vulnerable. And what does he try to do after he kills Abel. What's he try to do? Anybody track along with me? He tries to cover it up. He tries now to cover it up and cope. Our addictions often serve as a covering. You say, okay. It's not enough just to describe the giant. We've got to see how the giant goes down, right? So we'll go here to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Probably the last verse we'll look at this morning. As you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I just want you to know what David did with the clothing that Saul tried to cover him up with. Give us a pretty good idea of what we need to do also. David tried in vain to go, but he could not, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, we're going to move from David, my favorite guy in the Old Testament, to Paul, my favorite guy in the New Testament. 
Because Paul helps us here to understand the things that we feel like we got to cover up. What do we need to do with them? Y'all good? Hang with me. Five minutes. You got it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, to each is, is given. I think I've written down the wrong verse. Look at those, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <laughs> Sorry about that. 1 Corinthians 12 sounds great. It's just not our verse. I feel the need to cover myself up right now, but there's nothing I can really do. You were all there, and you all saw it, and that was the wrong verse. So 1 so Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me, this is Paul, from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Hey, if somebody's addicted to the bottle, you know when they want to go to the bottle? When they have weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. If somebody's addicted to substance abuse, when do they want to go to the substance? When they have insults, hardships, weakness, persecutions, and calamities. Is the Apostle Paul doing that? No. Why not? Is it because he has an absence of weakness, persecutions, calamities? What's the answer? You know, no. Some of us, that's our hope, that God would just deliver me from weakness, persecution, calamities. But God's goal is actually to make you holy. And you know one of the, some of the chief things God uses to make you holy? Weakness, persecution, insult, calamities. See, see Paul had something that he, he wanted to be rid of. To, to use the terminology, probably something he wanted to cover up. Now, if you want an interesting day reading, you, you read the commentators and the theologians who try to identify what his weakness was, what this thorn in the flesh was, a messenger from Satan to harass me. Some people say it was something physical, his eyesight or a, or, or a sickness. Others say that it was some sort of sinful stronghold that he wrestled with year after year. Weakness and vulnerability are actually our friend when we walk into the valley of Elah. And where most of us say we want to cover this up, you're either going to spend your life trying to cover up and cope, or you're going to have the giant fall down. No one has ever done something great for God that did not have a great thorn from God. So how does Paul deal with it? Thorn was given me in the flesh. Those two words, thorn and flesh, do lead me to believe that it was a sinful struggle that Paul had. He just wanted to be done with it. Thorns throughout Scripture represent sin. The flesh is our earthly nature. It's a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Oh, what that must have looked like. David on his, or sorry, Paul on his knees pleading that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe this, by the way? Because this is where we get into the alcohol and substance and so on and so forth. When we don't believe his grace is, we need a little bit of grace, but I also want a little bit of this. My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes the weakness that we want covered up is the very thing that God most uses to mold us into his own image. So we'll wrap up. We'll, we'll conclude this, this morning. But we want to approach these sinful strongholds in a Christ-honoring fashion. One of, the, one of the ways God uses these sinful strongholds in our life is to open up our eyes to our need of salvation. Amen? I mean, I mean if you're really wrestling with these things, you say, I, I need Christ. I need Jesus. And, and, and now he's given me life. I need to be unbound. I think, I think we'll conclude this way. Would, would you just stay where you are and bow your heads with me? Now, in, in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to have our invitation. But, man, some sinful strongholds are powerful. Some sinful addictions are powerful. T- taking, a, taking a note from Lazarus, you see what Jesus said? He, he said for some people to come alongside Lazarus and help unbind him. And some of us need to know that's going to be necessary in our lives. If you've got a, a stronghold with pornography or with uh, substance abuse or, or money, you, you're probably going to have to have another brother, a couple of brothers or sisters in the Lord come alongside you. You know what's requ- required in that, though? You can't cover it up. See, this is where we get stuck. It's where we get stuck. So for this portion of our invitation, we're just going to ask in this way. If there's a, a stronghold sin in your life that not a lot of people know about, maybe nobody knows about, but you want to be free from it, one simple application for us for today is you've got to find somebody that's trustworthy, it's mature in the Lord. Now listen, we've all got our strongholds and sins. Any of us in here without our struggles. Somebody's just going to help unbind. They're going to be somebody you can call when the temptation comes. Somebody that you can, can meet, to pray with. Lazarus didn't unbind himself. Christ gave him life, but then some, some people came alongside. to. So, so some of you just got to resolve. If you're going to be free, you got to resolve right now. You got to take a step and have some people involved in your life because the tragedy of sinful strongholds is they get you to where you want to cover it up and then you try to fight it on your own and it doesn't ever get anywhere, does it? That's why Christ has given us each other. Bear one another's burdens. Help each other. So resolve that and then, and then resolve what headline you're going to believe in life. You got a headline that Satan has proclaimed over your life. This stronghold wins. They used to resolve, I'm going to listen to God in his word. Pastor Matthew read a great verse. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And you're going to let that be the headline over your life. In a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, 
If you've got a burden on your heart or mind that you'd like to share with me, I'd be glad. I'd be beyond joy to stand here at the front and pray with anyone who's got a burden or a concern. Maybe you want to kneel here to the front. It's some issues in your own life or some that you love. You want to kneel and pray. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. You, you've not ever come from death to life. You know, it's impossible to have the grave clothes come off unless you've been given life and walked out of the grave. The invitation is open for that as well. Father, when we stand and sing, I pray the Holy Spirit of the living God would be at work in a deep, penetrating way. That there be some people here today that say, you know, it's going to be today. I've put it off and put it off and put it off. Now I am going to believe that Christ can rescue me. And it might involve some long process of people coming alongside of me and walking with me, but I'm not going to keep covering it up and covering it up and covering it up and blaming somebody else, blaming my wife like Adam did in the garden, blaming my parents for what they did or didn't do, blaming my friends for introducing me to this. I'm stopped blaming and I'm going to uncover and say I'm responsible and I want to be free. Father, I pray you do that for the glory of the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.